Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. As David said, I'm Pastor Joey. For those of you that are new, we believe everyone matters to God, and so you matter, and it's not by chance that you're here today. I believe God has something special in store for you. Uh, We are in week three of a new teaching series. We began going through what we believe is God's vision for our church that he wants us to create here at Vertical Life Church. And it's not that we're building a nonprofit organization or just another religious institution. I believe God is wanting us to build a community of faith. And the week one, we talked about building a community of prayer. That's really the lifeblood of, of the church of Jesus Christ is our heart for prayer. Last week, we talked about uh, a community of prophecy or prophetic gifting, hearing from God and then speaking what God is saying and letting God lead us. In Proverbs, it says uh, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. And I believe God is still speaking and still directing today. Do you believe that? I believe that as well. I believe God has much to say and much he would love to speak into our lives in many different ways. It's been such an awesome thing. Today, this focus that the Lord spoke to my heart is really the the third focus of this first phase that that we're already kind of in, that we're working on, but we're going to continue to press into. It's something that has been on my heart since I was a very young child. When I was um, a young young kid, I, I grew up in church. My parents were in ministry. I gave my life to the Lord at a young age. When I was in fifth grade, I had, I had this crisis going on because in my house, my parents were both musicians. They taught music, and it was mandatory that we were to pick an instrument to play. We had no choice. It wasn't an option. And they wanted us to play the piano because if you are a musician, you know the piano is really the bedrock of any other instrument. So they wanted us to play the piano, and I absolutely hated the piano. I could not stand it. And as obedient as I was, I never practiced. My parents were so incensed on getting us to play the piano that they decided to bribe us to practice. And so they would give me money to practice the piano. Like a rational parent would give you a spanking if you didn't do what you were told. But my parents didn't do that. They were, they were gracious to us. And they, they tried to pay us to practice. But that didn't even work. And so one day I had this conversation with, with my mom. She's like, why, do, why don't you practice? Why don't you play? And I was like, I just can't stand it. I can't stand playing the piano, and she's like, well, what instrument do you want to play? And I was like, I guess I'll play the guitar. And she's like, okay, so they got me a guitar for Christmas, and I've been playing it ever since. So it's been something that's just connected with me. When I was in fifth grade, I I had just gotten a guitar. I learned like maybe three chords. I think the only, I was learning like Michael Rhoda's Boat Ashore, like old, old songs, you know, in the book, and I knew three chords, and I knew how to play one uh, song at church. It's an old song called Lord Prepare Me to Be a Sanctuary. It's very old. Um, that's the only song I knew because it only used the three chords that I knew. And so I just played that over and over again. And when our fifth grade Sunday school teacher heard that I was learning the guitar, he said, do you know any songs? And I was like, yeah, I know one song. He's like, well, well, why don't you start leading music for us in class? And I was like, no, you don't understand. I know one song. He's like, that's okay. We'll just do that song every week. And I've been leading worship in church ever since. 
It's been a part of my life. Worship has been a heart uh, that, that has just been with me. And I just, uh, this thing of worship has just been a focus. If it weren't for worship and God's direction of doing worship in the church, I would have never been involved in the musicians, with the musicians that I was involved with, in the bands that I got to play, the opportunities I was able to have, which led me to a conference in Nashville, Tennessee, 17 years ago, where I met my wife, who was also producing music, and now we have a family where we're doing ministry together, leading worship. God, it's, this has been with me. This is on my heart. So as God was speaking about this vision, about what he wants Vertical Life Church to create, he gave me this, this focus of worship, but not just that we would sing songs, but his word was that we would train a worship generation with the Davidic anointing of fearless praise. Of Davidic anointing of fearless praise. To train a worship generation what this verse tells me is that God doesn't just have me or us in mind. He has legacy in mind. He wants us to raise up the next generation and another generation coming up behind us. This is not short term. This is long term. He wants us to equip and prepare those coming up after us to rise up to the mantle of fearless worshipers. What this also tells me, secondly, is that we need to understand what this Davidic anointing is. What does God mean Fearless praise. What is this Davidic anointing? And we have to go back and look at the one who kind of represents this whole idea in Scripture is King David of the Old Testament. We all know him most commonly as the one that killed the giant, right? David and Goliath. He slew the giant and eventually became the king of Israel. So to better grasp what God is communicating to us, we're going to look at David's legacy as the king of Israel and how important worship was and what God was doing uh, with worship in the life of Israel as David was king. So David finally gets to this place in his life where the previous king died in battle, his sons died in battle. He was able to recapture territory, set up his capital city in Jerusalem in Israel. And was finally recognized by all the tribes as the rightful king. His rule began with a mighty celebration because the Ark of the Covenant, the, this symbol of God's presence in the people, had been lost for somewhere upwards of 60 years. It had been absent. It had not been in its rightful place. So now in this, this point, as David's beginning his kingdom, his rule, the Ark of the Covenant is getting to return back to Israel, and he throws a celebration that would make the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade look like child's play. I mean, this was a significant moment in the life of Israel. In 1 Chronicles 15, 1, it says, Now David built several buildings for himself in the city of David. He also prepared a place for the ark of God and set up a special tent for it. David prepared this place for the ark. And what we have to understand is that when Moses first had the ark fashioned, just after Israel left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, they built a special tent for it called the tabernacle. But over the many, many years in neglect, as the people, as we can see in the book of Judges, the people began to kind of neglect the ways of God and the work of God. This tent became in disrepair. They lost the ark. And now David is preparing this new place as God comes back to the city so he can be rightfully honored and worshipped. In the old tabernacle, they used it for the sacrifice. That's where they would bring the sacrifices to make their uh, relationship right with God again. 
But David adds something else. He adds a new element to his tabernacle for the Lord. He adds an element of worship. In 1 Chronicles 16, 37 through 42, if, if, if you want to follow along, you can follow along on the screen or the YouVersion Bible app. Sometimes the screen has a habit of going out. So if you navigate on the YouVersion Bible app, you can get all the notes there. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, beginning in verse 37, here is the account of David's kingdom and this tent and this tabernacle that he had prepared. So, so he left there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Asaph and his brethren, to minister before the ark continually. Somebody say continually. Continually. As every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with their brethren, threescore and eight. Obed-Edom also the son of Jaduthan, Hosa to be porters or gatekeepers. And Zadok the priest and his brethren the priest. Before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon. To offer burnt offerings unto the Lord upon the altar of the burnt offering continually morning and evening according to all that is written in the law of the Lord. In this place of worship before the presence of God, there was nonstop sacrifice over and over again morning and evening, morning and evening. This is what was commanded of Israel. Verse 41, he says, And with them, not just the priests, in addition to the priests, Heman and Jaduthan and the rest that were chosen who were expressed by name to give thanks to the Lord because his mercy endureth forever. And with Heman and Jaduthan with trumpets and cymbals for those should make a sound and with musical instruments of God and the sons of Jaduthan were the porters. What David adds to the tabernacle was not just the sacrifice but the worship of Almighty God evening and morning morning and evening, never ceasing to praise the name of the Lord. He adds musicians and choirs to continually give thanks to Almighty God. And this is the time period in which the bulk of the book of Psalms was written. The very center of the book, if you have your Bible with you and you just fold it in half, you'll go right to the Psalms. Is it not interesting that the way God ordained the Bible to be organized is with worship at the very center? Here is the point where all these songs that are written to the glory of God are being written. And not just songs. They weren't just things they thought up to sing. But God's spirit, his presence, was moving in great power and great uh, uniqueness in this time. And they were writing and singing spiritual songs from the heart, new songs God was giving them, even giving them prophetic revelation of the Messiah and things to come. There was a prophetic nature of these psalms, of these songs written in Scripture. We get an allusion to this in the New Testament in Luke chapter 24 as Jesus is talking about how the Bible, the Old Testament, reveals who he is. In verse 44 of Luke chapter 24, it says, Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the what? In the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms were not just praise songs to the Lord. They were prophetic revelations of who he is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. There was this prophetic nature, the Spirit of God upon the worship, upon the songs, powerful prophetic utterances that put the will of God to work, that put it into motion. 
There was so much emphasis on this prophetic nature of music in the tabernacle of David. In 1 Chronicles 15, 22, the leader of the music, Chenaniah, it says, the leader of the Levites in music, that he should direct the music for he understood it. And here's where we can see how translating the Bible from ancient languages to English becomes a challenge because we miss a lot of the meaning in the original language. When it says that he was the leader of the Levites in music, that he should direct the music for he understood it does not just mean he was a skillful musician. That word music in the ancient Hebrew is the Hebrew word masah, which is translated as a burden, a song, a prophecy, or an utterance, or an oracle. He wasn't just skilled in music. He also understood prophetic language, prophetic things. He was a gifted prophet. And he understood how music, worship, and God's voice and the flow of the Spirit all worked together to bring about the glory of God and the will of God among the people. So he was chosen to lead, to lead people through the prophetic anointing into worship. And during this period of time, Israel experienced the height of their kingdom. It was really the only time that their nation was whole and intact. They had an unstoppable army. There were miracles of God that happened, and this continued on. Their wealth and affluence increased even through David's successor, the life of King Solomon. What was going on here, because of this prophetic worship, this presence of God that was in the nation, excelled them to be one of the greatest nations on the planet. And this is why I believe of our first three focuses for our church, it's prayer, prophetic, and praise, because this is exactly what was happening in the tabernacle of David. And in Amos chapter 9, there's a prophecy, and it's confirmed in Acts chapter 15, of a future time. In Acts 15, this is what is prophesied that God is going to do in the future. He says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the what? The tent of David. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Right now, it doesn't exist. It was destroyed long ago. But God is saying, I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles, as anyone who's not Jewish, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Do I believe the tabernacle of David will be restored physically? Yes. But I think there's a spiritual truth here. I believe in the last days as God is pouring out his spirit, as revival is being unleashed, that God in a spiritual sense is going to return houses of worship from nonprofit organizations to organizations full of profits. Wait for it. From nonprofit organizations to spiritual places where God's presence is in fullness and God is speaking and his people are worshiping and God is being glorified and his blessings are overflowing, where he releases his word to activate faith and activate his purposes in the world. And I believe this is what God wants for us at this church. That when everyone walks in the door, they encounter the presence of the Lord. Now they hear his voice. So how do we get there? How do we get to that place? I think we got to go back and look and see how David got there. Because David didn't just become king and all of a sudden enjoy these blessings. David had to go through some stuff. He had to learn some lessons. David 
gets this idea to bring the ark of the Lord back to the city, to Jerusalem, to the capital. And as he's preparing to do this, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, it says, Then David gathered again all of the elite troops of Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who's enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart. Somebody say new cart. He placed the ark of God on a brand new cart, and he brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ohio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ohio walked in front of the ark, and David and all the people of Israel were celebrating for the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. You can understand this momentous occasion that, that they're bringing the ark to Israel. This is, this is a big deal. So they're celebrating before the Lord. But when they arrived, verse 6, at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark. The Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah. God struck him dead because of this, so Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. It was all fun and games until Uzzah died. That kind of stops the celebration. This stopped everything going on. What was supposed to be a momentous occasion is now a major tragedy. Verse 8 says, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. He's like, what gives, God? What's the deal? I thought, I thought this was a good thing. We're worshiping, we're celebrating, and now you've taken this guy out. It says, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So David becomes king. He's now in charge of the nation. He's building houses. He's starting to prop up his, his authority, his rule. He gets this idea, you know, this is a great day. This is a great time. What could make this moment even better? I know. Let's go get the ark. Let's bring it to Israel. And we will all celebrate that, that we have the blessing and favor of God. And I'm his guy. I'm the, I'm the new God. I'm the one the Lord has chosen to lead Israel. But then God struck Israel. Uzzah and killed him, and all the air seeps out of David's head because God was saying, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, literally. You better hold up, David. Why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen to David? Well, I believe, number one, we can see this in the scripture. David was caught up in unhealthy tradition. He was caught up in unhealthy tradition. He had some mindsets that were not honoring to the Lord. When you look at the history of Israel, you'll read several occasions where they were facing an, an impossible task, an army, or crossing the Jordan River, and God would command Israel to go get the ark, let the ark lead you, and as they led the ark uh, in front of them and celebrated and worshiped the Lord, God would give them the victory, or he would part the waters and they could walk on dry ground. There are many things, many instances where God used the ark to bring deliverance to Israel. And so you can see how over time the people could start looking at the ark as, okay, this is, this is not just the, the place where we worship. This object has some spiritual or significance to it. 
And Israel, over the years, again, in the book of Judges, you see that God was blessing the nation. They had prophets. Things were going well. But then the Bible says that the Israelites began to do what was right in their own eyes. They began to forsake their covenant. They began to forsake following the Lord. They didn't do the sacrifices like they were supposed to. Even the priests, just before David's kingdom and his rule, the priests at this time, or the high priest, his name was Eli, he had two sons. His two sons were wicked. They weren't, he weren't, they weren't leading uh, the people well. They weren't following the ordinances. And they were even using their position to gain leverage over the people to prop up their wealth, their fame, and to fulfill their own selfish desires rather than honoring the Lord. And God spoke a word over the house of Eli. He says, this house will not continue, and then pronounced judgment on this family. And during this time, God raises up one of the greatest prophets of Israel, the prophet Samuel, to lead and to judge. One day, the Philistines, a new army, a new threat, come to face Israel, and, and they go to battle against Israel, and the elders of Israel are, are freaking out. They're like, man, this, this military is huge. They're, they're intense. How are we going to beat them? And they gather this meeting and meet with Phineas and, uh, and his brother, Eli's sons, the priests, and they start having this powwow. How are we going to beat this army? We don't know how we're going to beat this army. And so they, they come up with this solution. I know. We'll do what we've always done. We'll go get the ark, and we'll let the ark lead us, and that will ensure that we have the victory. So they all agreed, and they all thought, yeah, this is a great plan. And so they go get the ark out of the tabernacle and bring it to their camp. And as they do, everyone's celebrating like, oh, we got the ark. This means we're going to win. This is going to be awesome. And they let the ark lead them into battle. And rather than a, uh, just a phenomenal victory, they have a crushing defeat. They lose 30,000 troops in that battle. They even lose the ark of the covenant to the Philistine army. And the Philistines put the ark in the, their God's temple, and they proclaim, look, how our God defeated the God of the Israelites. It was a crushing defeat. Both of Eli's sons, the priests, die in the battle. And when Eli finds out about it, he falls back in his chair and breaks his neck, and he dies. And God's word against the house of Eli comes to pass. And one of his sons, his wife, was with child. And when she heard the news, she went into labor and and uh, she had complications in her pregnancy, and she dies just after childbirth. But just before the ba uh, she dies, she's able to name her son and names him Ichabod, which means the glory of God de has departed. Because to lose the ark meant God's out of here. God's presence is gone. The blessing and favor of God is gone. This is a bad day. This is a bad time for Israel. And decades go by. And because of this belief that God was no longer with the people, they asked Samuel, the new prophet of God, if they would appoint them a king. And so he, under God's direction, appoints King Saul. And Saul starts off strong, wants to honor the Lord, but then he too begins to turn his back on God and rebel against God rather than honor the Lord. And one day, Saul comes up against the Philistine army as well. And he just doesn't know what to do. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 18 and 19, here's what Saul says to the priest, it says, so Saul said to Hijah, bring what? Bring the, the ark of God here, for the ark of God at that time went with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more, and Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So not long after the, the Philistines had captured the ark, God started sending all these plagues on Israel. And they're like, we got to get this thing out of here. So they send it out on an ox cart. And the ox cart takes it back to the land of Israel. And it stays in the house of Abinadab for a period of time. 
So they know where the ark is, but they don't repent of their ways and return the ark to its rightful place. They leave it where it is to keep it on standby for a time where they could call for it again. So now here Saul is facing the same army, the same situation, and what's his bright idea? I know, let's go get the ark because it worked out well for him the last time. You know, no, it didn't. But that was his idea, and if it weren't for this tumult in the camp, he would have done it and probably lost the battle and lost the ark again. He would have done the same thing. What does this tell us? It tells us that among the leaders of the people of Israel, they began to view the ark as a good luck charm rather than the symbol of the covenant relationship they had with God. They were looking at the ark. They were using the ark like a magic weapon against their enemies rather than a tool to aid in communion and reverence for the Lord. Rather than trusting in the God who reigned over the ark, they began to trust in the ark. And they used the ark to their benefit. They didn't even seek the will of the Lord. How do we know? It's because they stopped asking God what should they do, and they were just deciding for themselves how they would use the ark of the covenant and began to view the ark as a symbol of the greatness of their kingdom, believing it was the ark that made them great, rather than recognizing it was the blessing and favor of God that made them great. The blessing and favor of God they enjoyed because of their covenant relationship with the Almighty. You said there was nothing significant about the ark of the covenant. It was a wooden box covered in gold. There was absolutely nothing significant about the ark. What made it significant was the presence of the one that covered it. The presence of God. They missed this simple yet incredibly profound truth that nothing we have is worth anything without the blessing of God's presence. Nothing we do means anything without the blessing of God's presence. You see, they began to put their faith in trinkets and the focus of their nation was on religious trinkets and traditions rather than the heart of God, this relationship they were supposed to have. So when it came time to David's time as king, what did David do when he wanted to show off the glory of the nation and celebrate this new day in the life of Israel? He wanted to go get the ark. And what did he do for the ark? He built a new cart to carry the ark so he could show off the ark before all the people as the glory of the kingdom. He wanted to show off all this splendor that he had to carry the ark. And I just sit back and think, how many of us do the very same things with the spiritual things that we engage in? We think just because we come to a church building that God is on the hook to be there. We think that just because we take communion that God is on the hook to bless or just because we pray or we do religious things, God is obligated to answer the way we think he should and we really don't stop to just contemplate or stop to really think about are we doing the things that he wants us to do in the way he wants us to do them. Are we doing things the way God wants? Are we really trusting in Almighty God or are we putting our trust in the mechanisms and traditions we have grown up to believe is the pathway to blessing? Are we seeking the Lord? 
Is this what and how God wants us to move? Are we, or are we using religious activity as a symbolic magic weapon, like a sorcerer's charm? Are we letting these unhealthy mindsets and traditions shape our religious experiences and beliefs, molding our, our life, our spiritual life, into what we think it should be? Or are we basing our religious life and our faith on what God wants it to be? You see, in today's church, we invent many new ways to show off God's glory, like a new car. There are many churches who are constantly trying to create new ways of doing things and, and, and new ways to draw crowds and draw attention and generate excitement. Yet with all the crowds they draw, the excitement is unsustainable because they have to keep inventing new carts. They have to keep reinventing the wheel or they'll lose their momentum. They'll lose the people. They'll lose the participation. They'll lose the interest. Why does it feel like we're losing more than we're winning often in the life of the church? Why does it feel more like a performance than a genuine experience? See, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, in talking about the communion, we do communion every, every week. We believe we honor the Lord that way. But he even says in 1 Corinthians 11, some, after eating the communion, walk away cursed, not blessed. Because there's something amiss in their life. You see, just because something is how it's always been done doesn't mean that's how it should have been done or that's how even God wants us to do it today. And we easily switch from reverence to rebellion if we fake to seek God's heart on the matters of faith and practice. In the life of Israel, after 60 years of the ark being hidden away, David decides to call for the ark, bring it to a new place of honor. He throws this party because of the return of the ark to its rightful place as the center of worship for God's people. Yet Uzzah dies. And what God is telling David, he says, I'm not going to bless you if you continue in the ways of those who have come before you. I'm not going to bless your kingdom. I'm not going to bless your rule, your reign, your life if you keep going the way that you're going. You will not be blessed if you stay this way. Matter of fact, I will stand against you. And this makes David have to search out and discover what am I doing that displeases the Lord. And he discovers the answer to the question. And he goes and has a conversation with the priestly line of Levi in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. It says, he says to them, you are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to, play, to the place I have prepared for it. Pay attention to verse 13. Here's what he says. He says, because you did not what? You did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not what? We did not seek him according to the rule. God had already said in his word how to carry the ark. But because they disregarded the word, they were not blessed. They became cursed. We did not seek him according to the rule. And what he discovers in the word of God is that the presence of God was not intended to be carried on the cart, but on the shoulders of his priests. It doesn't, look, it doesn't matter how nice your cart looks. And all the effort you put into making your cart, good intentions are not enough. Obedience is in the details of God's word. 
And this is where some of us are today. We're caught up in unhealthy behaviors, belief systems, traditions of the past that are standing in the way of God's blessings. And God is putting things in your life to put a pause on your forward movement so you will search his heart out so he can lead you into the blessings he's prepared for you. The people had gotten into a spiritual rut, a habit of going how they felt, the way of how they felt, not seeking the Lord and his word, not honoring the scriptures through the prophets. And this made David, in this moment, realize how he was to honor the Lord. And he began viewing the ark as something it was never intended to be. And now God was pulling him back into alignment with the truth. The ark was not a magic weapon. It was not their salvation. It was a representation of the one who was their salvation, who would also fight his battles for him. And it's interesting when you continue on and read the life of David, from here on out, you see David change his approach. The armies arise and he says, God, should I go out and fight them today? And God says, yes. Matter of fact, do it this way. Circle around and I'll give them into your hand over and over and over again. David learns his lesson. Seek the Lord. It's something that devastates many churches and believers or unhealthy belief systems that have created this, this block of what God wants to do, especially in the realm of worship. And many have canonized their tradition. They've made their traditions the standard, and they elevate what has always been done to the, the, the weight of Scripture. So when the time comes for God to bring some change, to lead them into to blessing, the loyalty to their tradition and preferences gets in the way of anything God wants to do in them and through them. And they walk on cursed because anything that's not blessed is cursed. They walk on distant from the blessing that God truly wants to bring. And this happens when we let our methods become traditions. When our methods become traditions, they soon become unhealthy doctrines. And in the life of the church, the church has argued and fought over so many things, especially involving worship. We've fought over the styles of music types of songs to sing, how many songs to sing in a church service, whether you can or can't use instruments, how many instruments, what kind of instruments to use, what, what tempo and meter in the song is okay. There's so many different things that over the history of church life, people have fought over. And what these arguments and belief systems reveal is there's really just something wrong in the heart of the people. There's something wrong in the heart of the people. Because it's more about how we feel than what he has said. It's more about how we feel than what God has spoken. And we're arguing over ox carts rather than truly seeking the Lord in his word. So David was caught up in some unhealthy doctrines. Uzzah had to die to wake David up to the reality of his arrogance, his ignorance, and his disobedience. We can look at David and see that he was well-intentioned. He was even celebrating, like he was worshiping the Lord. He was in the act of praise and worship, but yet he was in disobedience and rebellion. Think about it. Many believers have the right intention in worship, but they have the wrong vehicle to usher in the presence. David was using an ox cart when he should have been using poles on the shoulders of priests. And many of us have the right intention. We've just gotten the vehicle incorrectly. And Jesus tells us in the New Testament 
as he's talking to the woman at the well what the proper vehicle for worship is in the church. In John 4, 23 through 24, here's what he says. It's a prophecy about our day and time. He says the time is coming. It's indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in what? In spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in what? Spirit and truth. This is the proper vehicle to usher in the presence of God. We, we can look in the scripture and we look at this word spirit. It's the same word used for the Holy Spirit. But it's also translated as the human spirit or the sentient element in man. The vital principle which animates the body. The, the seat of your feelings, thoughts, or emotions. The spirit is everything in you that makes you you. All your emotion, all your feeling, all your thought, this is spirit. God is looking for a people who worship him with all their emotions, all their thoughts, all their feelings, everything inside. He's looking for people who worship him in that way. And not just in emotion, but also truth. This is what is true. Things that are pertaining to God, the duties of man, moral and religious truth to his word. In spirit. Everything you are according to the word of God. If we are living or behaving outside of God's word, we cannot, like David, expect God to bless our worship either. God does not bless disobedience, nor has he ordained disobedience as the vehicle to his presence. Using communion or religious things to obligate God to bless you is not going to bring the desired end. David didn't see God in his word and how to carry the ark, the symbol for the presence of God. And often we don't see God in his word on how to carry his presence in our worship. Think about Jesus instructing about worship. He said, if someone has offended you, someone has hurt you, you are to forgive them the same way God through Christ has forgiven you. You are to forgive without measure. He says, if you don't, in Matthew chapter 18, you'll enter a spiritual prison and be tormented. That brings a division and a separation between you and the fellowship you have with God. It hurts your worship. It hurts your access to the presence of God. He says, if you've hurt somebody else and you know that you've offended them, if you hold on to your pride and try to sweep it under the rug, pretend like it doesn't matter, it, it creates a difficulty. Matthew 5, 24, he says, you should leave your sacrifice there at the altar Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. There are heart conditions. There are issues in our life. We wonder why we don't hear his voice. We don't feel his presence. It's because we have walked in ignorance, rebellion, and disobedience. And God is saying, you're not going to honor me in that way. You're not going to access the blessing I have for you that way. God doesn't want anything to hinder his presence. Why? Psalm 22.3, one of the most profound passages on worship. It says, yet you are holy, you are set apart, and you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Your praises of your people. That enthroned means to sit down and preside over. When God's people worship, the manner in which he has ordained, our praise goes up and his presence comes down. Our praise goes up and his presence comes down. And he is able to draw near 
to us. Think about it. Why did God's presence enter the tabernacle and sit on the ark? Why did God come in the form of Jesus and walk among us? Why has he poured out his spirit to live in us? It's because God wants to be close to you. He wants to be near you. He loves you with an unfailing, unconditional love. But he can only go so far. You've got to come the rest of the way. You've got to draw close. Spirit and truth. David was caught up in unhealthy culture and unhealthy traditions. Number two, he had to realize that this moment was not about his greatness, but God's greatness. It wasn't his glory, it was God's glory. It wasn't he what he wanted God to do, but what God wanted him to do. You see, his first attempt to collect the ark, David celebrated as a mighty king. But after he realigned himself with the word of God, he came into humility and humbled himself as a servant. 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 15, it says, Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household, everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. Notice the manner of which they moved the ark has changed. Went from being on the cart to on the shoulders of men carrying the ark. David sacrificed a fattened calf. He danced before the Lord with all of his might wearing a priestly garment. So his clothes changed. He, his whole position, disposition changed from look how great I am to look how great God is. I am nothing. He's everything. And they were shouting and blowing ram's horns. But David realizes that he had to lower himself in the eyes of men before he could be elevated in the eyes of God. He had to lower himself in the eyes of men. When he let go of his pride, stopped clinging to his dignity, he got to be part of something significant, which opened the door of this prophetic anointing on him and the people of God. David no longer feared what others thought. He merely feared the Lord. And it says, when David danced, the word dance here means to whirl in a circle. The guy do si for miles because of what was happening here. And not begrudgingly, look what it says in 2 Samuel 6, 14. It says, after the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, and David danced before the Lord with what? With all his might. With all of his might. I want to show you a little clip of what it might have looked like. This is a, a, a representative of what it might have looked like for David to dance with all of his might. Go ahead. <laughs> danced here actually means to twirl in a circle. And he did it with all of his might. You can't dance like that half-heartedly. You can't dance like that begrudgingly. You can't dance like that without 
intention and effort and an intensity. In Mark 12, 30, this is the Lord. Lord Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, spirit and truth. What is in comes out. Spirit and truth requires all that is within to bubble up and overflow to the outside of us. The only way we let what is within our passion from the Lord to overflow freely like David is to recognize that in order to be elevated in the eyes of God, we must first lower ourselves in the eyes of men. It's not about us, but it's all about him. James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. One of the hindrances we have in our worship, and it's a traditional mindset that affects many. These unhealthy mindsets is the fear of what people think. But do you know when God was cho choosing David to be king, the prophet he was using to, to anoint him and call him into, in to anoint him as the next king even judged David? In 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, as Samuel is questioning God's choice. God tells Samuel, he says, people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. There will never be a time in your human existence, your life, where you can escape the judgment of man. You will never live a life that will be unjudged. No matter how many times we quote Matthew 7, don't judge lest you be judged. Not only will you be judged, but you also judge. It's the frailty of the human condition. And probably one of the most difficult judgments or criticisms to endure is those of members within your own family, those who are really close to you. It is crushing. And after David celebrates, he's blessing. He even feeds the whole mass of people. He, it's just this time of worshiping the Lord was uproarious and celebratory and awesome. As he gets home with the intention to bless his own family, he's greeted by his wife. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, it says this, When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. See, David had shed his kingly attire to put on a humble linen garment, that of a priest. Her sarcastic remark was meant to rebuke David for making a fool out of himself. And probably what the truth is, is that he felt, she felt that he was making a fool out of her. Guilt by association. Because people of our stature, we just, don't, we just don't do that. We don't act like that. And David responds to his wife, verse 21, he says, I was dancing before the Lord, who chose me above your father and all of his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrated before the Lord. Yes, I'm willing to look what? To look even more foolish than this even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I'm distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. You see, in David's first encounter with the ark, he learned a valuable lesson. He did not deserve the blessing and favor of God. It was only by God's grace. It was not about his greatness as a king, but about God's greatness as the king of kings. 
And in this account, who really looked foolish? David or his wife? The one who was enjoying his time, celebrating with everyone else, laughing, being bonded, being connected, worshiping God freely and unabandonedly? Or was it the one who sat back and criticized? Everyone else is having fun. Everyone else is enjoying the Lord. Everyone else is getting connected and bonded together in that moment. But it's the critic who misses out on the blessing. You see, the favor of God falls on those who love him and keep his commandments, who worship him in spirit and truth. And if you want to be honored by God, you first have to lower yourself to let go of pride. If he was truly to worship God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he could only do that if he stopped caring about what other people thought. And because of what David did, because of his humility, God honored him. His popularity grew in the eyes of people, and God blessed his nation more and more every day. And what's interesting is what it says about David's wife. It says that Michael, because of this one encounter, had no children until the day of her death. May it be, beloved, that the fruitfulness of our faith is determined by the fearlessness of our worship. The fruitfulness of our faith is determined by the fearlessness of our worship. See, we need to cast aside traditions and mindsets that say, you know, that's not for me. That's not my personality. I mean, let's have real talk in this moment. Transfer us from a church service to courtside seats at our favorite basketball team. Or depending on which side of the aisle, Michigan or Michigan State football. Does anyone have to coach you to stand and shout when they make a good play or a touchdown? Does anybody have to say, well, this is really how we do it here at the football game, you know? Or do we worship without even thinking about it? We worship the gods of this earth. Without a thought, but when it comes to the God who spoke the earth into existence. Wow, that's not for me. Why do we stand, bow, clap, and cheer on the idols of this world? You go to your favorite concert and you're on the front row. No one has to tell you to get excited when the first chord of the song begins to play. It just happens. You just get excited. May it be that we actually feel like the elders of Israel. That just because we come to the church gathering, we're entitled to God's blessings. And so we go through the motions, but yet remain spiritually unaffected. And what I think the spirit of religion has done is programmed out of the church a true worshiper's heart. And many churches and people reflect what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 29. He says, this people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips... All their hearts are far from me, and the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. What is he saying? He's saying when you gather for worship, you just go through the motions. And anything you do out of respect is taught as simply the tradition of what you've always done. There's no spirit. There's no heart. But, beloved, if we would marry both spirit and truth together, can you imagine what God will show us? Can you imagine what God would do? What type of encounters we'll have? 
I mean, that's only going to happen when the people of God stop fearing what other people think and start truly revering the Lord. Or we adopt the attitude of David, I'll become even more indignified than this. Why? Because you're worthy. During this time of prophetic worship, as the Psalms are being written, many words are used to call the people to worship the Lord. And I just want to give you just a couple as we wrap up. But in the English translation, you'll read it as worship, praise, or bless. But again, we miss the depth of meaning because it's hard to translate word for word. But there's a word we're all very familiar with. It's the word hallelujah. It's a compound word that's divided into two. Hallel and Yah. Yah is the unspoken name of God in the Hebrew language. The word Hallel means to, to be clear of sound, to shine, to make a show, to boast, to be clamorously foolish, to make foolish, to rave, to celebrate, to commend, to sing, praise, renown. And so when you declare hallelujah, you are declaring, you are calling the people to rave about like a madman in glory of the Lord. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! To rave, to make a show. Why? Because he is worthy. Hallelujah. I say hallelujah. You say hallelujah. 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 I say hallelujah. You say hallelujah. 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 Amen. Hallelujah. The word tehillah means to praise vocally or sing or shout. Yoda means to hold out the hand, to throw out the hands, to revere the Lord. Toda means to sing praises together as a community in harmony. Sabah means to reach out with affection for God. God, you are the object of my heart and my life. I need you. This is Sabah. Barak means to kneel and bless the Lord. God, you're worthy. My life has fallen apart, but you're the only one that can make the difference in my life. Shabak means to address in a loud tone, to make glorious sound. And Shabak means to adulate, to adore, to pour out your affections to the Lord. God, you're so beautiful. God, you're so glorious. Your love is better than wine. Your, your name is better than honey. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. And we see these words written on the page of the Psalms of the Scripture calling us into the heart of a true worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth. Many calls to dance. I'm going to talk to the, the youth today. I heard a rumor that y'all don't dance in Sunday school. I heard... Now, real talk, hashtag real talk, okay? Y'all be renegading up at Walmart. <laughs> and you can't renegade for the King of Kings. Well, Fortnite all day long. But we won't bow for the one that died for our sins. Real talk. Who do we think we are? Kings? Royalty? It's only because of the King of Kings. It's only because of his blood. It's only because of what he's done. Why does God want to unlock the Davidic anointing of fearless praise in our church? Because when we are fearless 
in our worship, nothing's going to stifle the Holy Spirit to work and to move. Psalm 22.3, you are wholly enthroned on the praises of your people. When people lift their songs of worship with their whole hearts, God's presence descends on the people. Is there not another worthy cause to celebrate than to look foolish? Is there not another greater reason to, to humiliate ourselves in the sight of God because of what he's done? The truth is, we don't worship just because of what he has done. We celebrate because of what he is doing, and we prophesy what he's going to do. In Psalm 149, it says, sing praise to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing praises in the assembly of the faithful. O Israel, rejoice in your maker. O people of Jerusalem, exult in your king. Praise his name with dancing, accompanied by tambourine and harp. For the Lord delights in his people. God delights over you, beloved. He delights over his people and crowns the humble with victory. Let the faithful rejoice that he honors them. Let them sing for joy as they lie on their beds. Let the praises of God be in their mouths and a sharp sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with shackles and their leaders with iron chains, to execute judgment written against them. This is the glorious privilege of his faithful ones. What is the sword of the Spirit? It is the mighty word of God as the people of God praise him with their heart, praise them, and declare the word in truth. God tears down strongholds. God overthrows enemies. God sets apart the captive free. God releases miracles. Let the praise of God be in their mouths and a sharp sword in their hands. We sing to bless. We sing to encourage. But we also sing to declare the promises of God over one another and cling to the truths that we need to make it another day. And there's a promise that we have that's greater than them all. In the vision of John in Revelation 19, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire. And on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. When the sky parts, it is rolled back like a scroll, and we see the King of glory, the Son of man, coming on the clouds with great power and great authority. And this, beloved, should cause us to rise in worship. This, beloved, should cause us to set our hands up high. This, beloved, should cause us to drop to our knees in awe of the Almighty God. This, beloved, 
beloved should make us shout. This beloved should make us sing. This beloved should make us dance. The dance for the Lord because he is worthy. If you are ready to receive this mandate of fearless praise to begin walking this journey, then I say let's arise and let's receive of the Lord as we go into worship. Heavenly Father, we come. You are worthy. You are mighty. You are awesome in this place. My God and King, forgive us of fearing man. Forgive us of having unhealthy mindsets and traditions. Forgive us of making carts arrayed in our own glory to carry your presence. Today, God, teach us. Teach us to carry your presence the way you ordain. Unlock our hearts so that nothing gets in the way. If there's someone here today that's never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that is the first step to true worship and honoring the Lord. To begin a relationship with God so that He can come close and dwell in your heart. He wants to live in you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to save you and redeem you. And right now in the quietness of this moment, you can receive Jesus as your Savior simply by praying a simple prayer. The Bible says just confess Him as your Lord. So you can do that right here. Just say, Jesus, you're my Lord today. Forgive me of my sins. I trust in your death and resurrection. And every promise in your word, fill me with your spirit. Today I'm yours in Jesus' name. A simple prayer like that, the Bible says you'll become born again. And maybe you're here today and there's some unhealthy mindsets, there's some traditions you've been holding on to, there's some fear. As we go into a time of worship, we have our prayer teams down here or we have a, an open row. You can come and just kneel before the Lord. But if we truly want to have this anointing of fearless praise, then my challenge to you today is do something you've never done. If you've been this every week, go to this. If you've been this every week, go to this. If you've been this every week, go to this. Do something you've never done. Begin to walk it out. Spirit and truth. And I believe that God is in this place. He sees and knows every heart. And he wants to do something. He wants to unlock something in you today. Stop letting what's been there keep you from him. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up in honor. Let's sing and let's respond to the Lord. www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.